following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. There will come a time in your life, Lord willing, that you will meet someone who, in encountering them, you realize they have character traits that I lack. They have strengths where I have a weakness. They know something that I am ignorant of. This happened to me years ago when living in China, God in his providence allowed me to meet a young man who was a freshman in college who was a Christian. He grew up in the house church, and I learned much about the life of Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ from this man who was many years younger than me. We were sitting in my apartment, and as we were talking, I was imagining all the or thinking about the sufferings that I was imagining I was taking on by living in this country. Needing to learn a new language, not knowing the cultural references that they would know there in China. Uh, my humor and their humor didn't always match up. Uh, and thought, this is, you know, I'm taking on the life of suffering. I'm humbling myself to follow Jesus to go to this place. And so as I'm asking questions to my friend who I'll call Simon, I learned that I had much more to learn about what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. I asked him, what was it like growing up here in Shanghai? And, uh, you know, where, where do you live? And as he looked around my modest multiple-room apartment, he said, oh, I, I grew up in a one-room apartment. Just one room. Down the hallway was the bathroom that we shared with the other one-room apartments. And so I've never lived a life with my own bedroom. Oh, okay. Well, what, what did your father do? what does he do for, for work? He said, ah, my, my father is a, and these are his words, my father is a common factory worker. My father is very smart. He's very wise. But he will always be a common factory worker because he is a Christian. And because he is a Christian and will not join the Communist Party for his whole life, he will be a common factory worker. But I'm proud of my father. And he was reflective as he was telling me this story. I'm proud of my father because he knows that Jesus is worthy. And my father is happy to bear this burden because he knows that God loves him and will always care for us. Simon knew that to follow Jesus Christ was to follow the call to humility. His father knew this as well. To follow Jesus is to accept the difficult times that are from God's hand. 
Since the beginning of the early church, every century has seen Christians somewhere in the world relegated to the equivalent of a common factory worker. Some were servants. Some were made slaves. Some were imprisoned for their faith. And through it all, they had to decide whether they would accept the call to humility. Rather than complain, would they see their suffering as pathways for deeper reliance upon and communion with Jesus? The letter in the New Testament called 1 Peter for thousands of years, 2,000 years, has told Christians how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundational principle by which the Christian life is lived out within the larger unbelieving society. For the original audience of the letter, their identity in Christ not only was their greatest joy, but was also the reason that they suffered many trials. What they experienced was not empire-wide persecution, although their children would. Their status as exiles resulted in poverty, loss of status, and insults from their neighbors. And so the Apostle Peter wrote to encourage them and to remind them of the grace of God and call them to stand firm in Christ. Whether their neighbors attacked or respected them, they could bear witness to the grace of God by their Christian lifestyle. And that's what we're called to do as well, as it appears that there's dark clouds on the horizons, on the horizon for Christians in our world today. Perhaps you've experienced this in your workplace or in your community, where it seems more and more Christians are not exalted, but mocked. Perhaps you've heard that uh, more and more movies are coming out where the villain is a Christian. Quite different than years ago when the Christian modeled virtue and was the hero. No, nowadays, Christians are the problem in our society. That's the appearance. And so what does it look like to live faithfully for Christ in this setting? What does it look like for us to follow Jesus in an unbelieving world? Well, Peter says that the foundation for all these exhortations is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the example of faithfulness while suffering. Jesus is also the one who secures for them and for all who believe in his name an eternity without suffering in the presence of the triune God. That inheritance secured in Christ by his death and resurrection means though they are seen as strangers and aliens in this world, they can rejoice in their trials because they are seen as sons and daughters by the living God. Though suffering, they sing. Theologian Edmund Clowney summarized the call that Peter uh, gave to the saints in this way. Knowing well the doom and darkness from which they were delivered, the new people of God sing forth his praises. Their hallelujahs ring from, from their assemblies, their homes, even from the prison cells where their fear of God has set them free from the fear of man. Their witness is a witness of praise. The true grace of God has called them to his glory. Everything, even their sufferings, will serve his purpose who redeemed them at such a price. The trait that I saw in the eyes of my Christian friend Simon as he described being a Christian in China, the trait that his father possessed as a common factory worker, is a trait that all of us as Christians must grow in to practice living for Christ in this world. That trait is humility. 
So we're going to look closely at this passage at the end of Peter's letter, 1 Peter chapter 5. It's printed in your worship guide. It's also uh, hopefully in a Bible or a Bible app that you got. You can read along with me. And we're going to look along more of what is humility. So to understand this critical mark of a Christian, we will look at first the habit of humility, the enemy of humility, the freedom, the shield of humility, and the hope of humility. That'll be the outline for this sermon and the outline of this passage. If you're taking notes again, that is the habit, the enemy, the freedom, the shield, and the hope. First, the habit. Look at verse 5. It says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Peter's phrase, clothe yourself, is a term of a Roman slave adjusting their clothes so they are able to serve their master. The habit of humility, then, is to choose service. And this service specifically is directed toward fellow believers. Peter says that the Christian community is to be known for rolling up their sleeves and ready to serve one another. Now, our natural habitat, our, our, sinful, excuse me, our sinful habit, uh, is to selfishly say, what will you do for me? We can say that about relationships. We can say that selfishly about our friends. We can say that about a church. What will this church do for me? But in this passage, it says here that we should rather say, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? Paul said something similar in Philippians where he said, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, as we refuse to be preoccupied with ourselves and our own importance and seek to love and serve others, it will reorient us from self-centeredness to other-centeredness, to serve and care for others just as Jesus did. I can't help but imagine that Peter, in writing these words of clothing yourselves in humility, would remember that event in John where his rabbi, the, the one he followed for years, took on the form of a servant, sat on a servant's stool, and washed Peter's feet. That Peter, resistant to this, would then know that it was not just a rabbi who had washed his feet, but the Son of God. What a stunning reality. Can you imagine God incarnate? The one who created you, washing the dirt off the soles of your feet. That is the God that we serve. That is the Christ that we worship. That is what Jesus has come to do, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now for us, humility is a habit that takes practice. In the book, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Timothy Keller writes, developing the identity, attitude, and conduct of a humble servant does not happen overnight. It is rather like peeling an onion. You can, you can always cut away one layer only to find another beneath it. But it does happen. And as we forsake pride and seek to humble ourselves by daily, deliberate choices, independence on the Holy Spirit, humility grows in our souls. 
The theologian Fenelon said it well, humility is not a grace that can be acquired in a few months. It is the work of a lifetime. When we begin this habit of humility, it's like turning on the, the radar at an airport. The radar, like when you're in a plane, you're not looking for the radar tower. Like you're looking for the runway. You want to land safely, right? And so when we are learning the habit of humility, it's like turning on the radar and just searching, 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 not for incoming planes, but for, in, for people. And we want to direct them in their needs to land safely where they need to go, primarily in a relationship with Jesus Christ, but also the tangible needs in their lives. For example, I heard about a Christian woman who asked her pregnant coworker if anyone planned to bring her meals after the baby was born. No, she replied, why would, why would anyone do that? Is that something that people do? Uh, and the Christian woman answered, well, actually, yeah, our church organizes this thing we call a meal train, and families will bring dinners, prepared dinners, for a month or two after the baby was born. And uh, the woman replied, well, I, I'll do one, one meal, or maybe two, but a month, that sounds, sounds like a lot, or two, two months sounds like way too much. And the woman said, no, actually, we'll set this up. I think the people at my church would be glad to serve in this way. And so they organized two months of dinners for this new, this new mom. And when she returned months later, uh, the coworker said that she didn't know that many people outside of her work. And it was such a huge blessing for her to have these meals. She had no idea how hard it was going to be to have a newborn. And she was grateful for all of those casseroles. Uh, but then she said, I didn't know that a caring community like that existed. Sounds like something from an old TV show from the 1950s where people would actually know their neighbors. And then she said, um, I was really surprised that these strangers were willing to help and seemed genuinely happy to do that. I'd really like to get to know them better. Could I come to church with you? When the church rolls up our sleeves and we're ready to go, ready to serve, that means we're watching kids for worn-out moms. We're asking new people from church out to lunch. We're finding out when people are sick and being willing to help them with yard work. It's seeking the good of others because we are thinking of ourselves less. It's teaching our children the habits of humility by having them clean up after dinner. Not because it means there's less work for us, but we want to shape their hearts that they learn what it means to serve others. And in doing so, we are imitating Christ. So for some of you, the next best thing for your sanctification may not be to read the next book on the Christian life, but to ask, what am I tangibly doing to become a servant of a fellow member of this church? Reading is good. I love reading books. But some of us might need to do less reading and more serving. To develop this habit of humility is to accept the call of humility. That sounds great, um, but why don't we do it? Well, it's because there's an enemy of humility. We see this again in verse 5. The enemy to humility is pride. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Notice this term, oppose. This is a military term. God is gathering his army for battle against the proud because the proud are against him. So what's wrong with pride? Well, pride is what led Adam and Eve to strive to be like gods in the garden, leading to their ruin and all those after them eternally separated from God because of this sin. 
And all those in their wake pattern, our, pattern their own uh, sin after this, seeking to be gods, controlling their own lives, and rebelling against his word. Pride led Israel during the time of the judges to reject God's law and do whatever was right in their own lives, uh, in their own eyes, leading to chaos and destruction. This nation that was meant to be a beacon of light to the nations rather became a nightmare of violence, selfishness, and destruction. And the sad thing is, I see our country doing the same thing. Is it not a reminder to us of the seriousness of pride and the need to repent of it rather than celebrate it? Pride always leads to more sin as we arrogantly think more of ourselves, less of God and his revealed word. In the book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a chapter on the subject of pride where he says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Now think about this. When you think about some of the, the key wars of this world, Many of them are unjust, violent, leading to the, the destruction of millions of lives. And who led that charge? Often it was someone with a great ego, someone driven by pride and not justice. In the New Testament letter of James, this verse that uh, we, we've been quoting from Proverbs is quoted there as well as a warning of showing favoritism to the rich in the church. And this is to show that pride can eternally keep people separated from God, why we need Christ. But pride also echoes in the hearts of believers and can destroy a church. And James saw that and wrote this warning. Uh, and so we need to be on guard against that as well. Pride prefers some other people over others. It honors those who the world deems worthy of honor, giving more weight to their words, their wants, and their needs. And so we can either consciously or unconsciously Pass over the weak, the inconvenient, and the unattractive because they don't seem to offer us much. This should not be the way for the people of God. It is a direct distortion of the glory of the gospel that Christ has come for all. All are welcome to join him. All are welcome to sit at his great table. All are welcome to come before the, the foot of the cross, repent of their sins, and find forgiveness and favor. But too often, churches look more like country clubs where the popular, the rich, and the beautiful get the best seating. May that not be the case for River City Baptist. I don't think it will be. But guard yourselves. Take these warnings seriously from James, from Peter, from Paul and from God himself when he says that he is opposed to the sin of pride. In Isaiah 66 too, God says, these are the ones whom I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. There's good news for the prideful. You can repent. Confession of pride signals the beginning of the end for pride. It indicates the war is already being waged, for only when the Spirit of God is moving, already humbling us, can we remove the lenses of pride from our eyes and see ourselves clearly. 
by God's grace, we can turn away from selfish independence and trust completely in Him. If you have never turned to God, could it be because of your pride that the last, the last thing to keep you from eternal life is your own self-reliance? Are you really able to control your life? Are you really able to be the master of your plans? Do they all come to, together for you? Now, I think that you would see if you do an examination of your life that your pride has not led to blessing, but likely has led to pain with family members, the loss of friends. Pride won't just ruin your life. It will damn you. But you can turn to Christ. He will gladly pardon all of your sins, including the sins of pride. Humble yourselves before his mighty hand. Know that life can be found in him eternally. He has come to pardon all sin. Find life in him. So the call of humility given to Christians is a call to a habit and choosing service. It's a means, it also means facing the enemy of humility by repenting of our pride. The call of humility also brings freedom. The freedom of humility. The freedom of humility means to trust in God's providence. We see this in verse 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Humility brings freedom when we cease our anxious striving and begin to rest knowing that God cares for us. To be humble and to subject ourselves to God will bring greater comfort to your soul than any uh, attempts of gratification through pride and ambition. What wakes you up at night? What distracts you from focusing on others? You know, currently our cultural moment is talking excessively about anxiety. It, it's, I mean, everywhere you go, everyone's talking about anxious, being anxious. They're talking about mindfulness. They're talking about, uh, you know, being self-aware of your emotions. And it's true. We need to take mental health seriously. Anxiety is a big problem. Uh, we have record levels of prescription drugs for depression and anxiety. I went to the doctor a few months ago. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm having a hard time sleeping at night. And he's like, first instinct, oh, I can, I can prescribe you some drugs. Now, some of you, it's, you need to take the medication. I understand that. There's biological realities for depression that, that it's a mercy for God that God has provided this to help with those things. So please hear me. Don't, don't, don't hear me say that medication's sinful. But for many of us, medication is keeping us from what we really need to deal with. Please hear me. Our unbelief in God's providence is what's leading to our anxiety. My anxiety, mine, Joshua Ehrman's anxiety, is rooted in unbelief. That is my problem. My anxiety, for me, is an indication that I need to repent of sin. I'm just being honest. This is what I have to deal with. You can ask my wife after the service. This is true. She'll tell you, right? Like, all this talk of anxiety is because we have discarded the safety and rest and freedom that is found by knowing the living God. 
He is the one who orders our lives. He is the one who's over all things. And we think, oh, I'm suffering. He must not be in control. No, listen, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God means I know that my circumstances are ordered by him. And even though I'm suffering with a physical ailment, even though I, raised, I was raised in a family with conflict, even though I was in a family that had substance abuse, even though I'm in a situation where we endured poverty or ostracism, could it be that God's hand orchestrated that for you because he wanted to teach you dependence upon him? Could it be that he put you in that situation so you would learn that your life is not your own and you're not going to be able to control it to the level you think you can? You need to humble yourself before him and say, God, I yield to you. I'm willing to be a common factory worker. I'm willing to endure this cancer. I'm willing to endure the conflicts that's unjustly coming my way from my crazy uncle. God ordains all of these things. And if we're willing to submit ourselves to him and to humble ourselves to him, we will actually experience freedom. Freedom and knowing that he has ordered our days. Freedom, and knowing that he holds all the nations in the palm of his hands. Yes, I'm anxious about Ukraine and Russia. God holds it in his hands. Yes, I'm anxious about what's going to happen to my kids when they grow up. God holds this in his hands. Yes, I know many of you are anxious about what you're going to do when you graduate from college. What job can I possibly get with this degree? God holds this in your hands. Some of you, I know your marriage, rather than a blessing, has been difficult. God holds that in his hands. Every time you feel anxiety well up in your heart, let it be an instinct to direct that you to prayer. Don't reach for the pills. Reach for Christ. Cast your cares on him. He cares for you. Would you believe this? This look, look at the two aspects that Peter says here in this passage. He wants these people to know. God's mighty hand, and he cares for you. It's important that we own both of these things. God is mighty, and he cares. God has the power, and he has compassion. He can do something about your trials, and he wants to do something for you. He cares for you. Now, many of us enjoy keeping up with the news. But so often the news is written to provoke fear and worry and distract you from the providence of God. I had someone, I was, I'm a, I'm a sucker for this. I like to read a lot of commentary. I'm that guy. It's a, it's a thing I have to be on guard for. But a friend of mine said, oh, isn't that guy that you read a fear monger? Oh, that's, that's pretty strong words there, a fear monger? But I needed that word because I realized that, yes, that's exactly what's going on. When I heard this social commentator talking about what's going on in the world, the problems with our culture, the problems with politics, the problems with the globe, I did not walk away filled with peace. I was filled with fear. I was filled with anger. I could even feel it in my body. Be wise about what voices you're allowing coming into your heart. The remedy here given to us in God's word. Humble yourselves. Put your life into God's mighty hand. Pray for your finances. Pray for your civic leaders. Pray for peace between Russia and Ukraine. I would like to encourage you this afternoon to put this into practice by going through the Lord's Prayer. Jesus has provided for us a prayer. 
Uh, and you can find this in the book of Matthew, chapter 6. And if you pray it line by line, you'll see that it will direct you to cast your cares upon your heavenly Father. It reminds you who's in charge. It reminds you who can provide your daily bread. It reminds you to reconcile with those you're in relationship with. And he will hear that prayer and he will bring comfort to your soul. Several years ago, there was a war in Syria, a civil war that caused chaos, buildings bombed out, refugees spread throughout, throughout Europe. And in that moment, many Christians took it upon themselves to serve humbly those who were dispossessed and walking out of the rubble. A director of a ministry uh, working in that region said that many of these people in Syria began becoming Christians because they were casting their anxieties on God in Christ. And they saw that it was the prayers to Christ that sustained them. He said, quote, you can see the tears in their eyes when we would pray for them in the name of Christ, that God would care. Muslims who were previously taught to pray by rote to Allah, who by Quranic definition was unknowable, could feel the difference of having a relationship with God through Christ. He wanted to say, he went on to say, they see that God can give you strength, can heal you. They say that things have changed, that they have a peaceful attitude towards those who have done this to my wife and to my kids or husband. I can pray about it and give it to God. What a transformation to walk out of the rubble of a bombed out apartment building and then be able to say, because you're casting your cares to Christ, that you're willing to forgive the person who did it. What freedom is found in Christ? Cast your cares upon him. He cares for you. Living in the freedom of humility by trusting in God's character and going to him, however, will meet opposition. Because we have an adversary, and he is a liar, and he hates you. And so we must have a shield against his attacks, the shield of faith, the shield of humility. The shield keeps us from the attacks of Satan, from the sin within, and from our own suffering. We'll see this in chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. It says, Be alert and, sober, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. How do we resist the devil and his schemes? Peter says we must be alert and sober-minded. If you were to hear on the news that a lion had escaped from the Richmond Zoo, you first would say, oh, I didn't know the Richmond Zoo had a lion. That's interesting. Yeah. And the second thing you would do is like, oh, I wonder where that lion is. If you were to hear that the lion mauled several people down the street from your house, how would you uh, go about leaving your home to walk towards your car? Perhaps you would walk a little bit differently. Maybe you wouldn't be checking your smartphone. Maybe you wouldn't uh, let the kids out the door racing to see who get to the car first. You'd be a little more cautious. Well, here the, our enemy, the lion, is described as a lion looking for someone to devour, looking for a lost sheep, one who has strayed from the flock. Do not minimize the threat of Satan. He is real. 
One of the fascinating things that I've been witnessing on college campuses and in pop culture is a growing interest in the occult. This is actually predicted by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Hideous Strength, that he wrote in the 1950s, that there would be this strange combination of denying an all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipotent God, but matched with spiritualism. And we're seeing more of this. I've actually seen a, a number of ECU students with tarot cards, tarot cards tattooed on their arms or on their legs. There's no transcendent, all-knowing God that I could know personally, but there are spirits that I can interact with and that I can know and that will give me power. It's one of his ploys. It's one of his schemes. Be on guard. It is a threat to you. Resist him. Satan is like a fly fisherman. He, like, Satan only works in uh, counterfeits. You know this, right? His, he doesn't work in matter of truth. He only works in lies. And so in this way, he's like a fly fisherman. And for hours, he'll just swing that fly, this fake fly, back and forth over the surface of the water, hoping to draw the attention. And he does that with you as well. He's just going to hover lies over and over, right above your head, hoping that you'll snatch it and that he can hook you. How does he do this? Uh, he loves to accuse you of things you've done in the past. He loves to bring to your mind past sins. He delights to hit the replay button of when you lost your temper. He will loop over and over again what you did in secret or when you got caught gossiping or when you were, when you were greatly exaggerating your accomplishments to others. He loves to bring that up. He wants you to be buried under a pile of shame to doubt the love of Christ and the sovereignty of God. And when he does that, how do we resist him? What is the shield? It's a shield of faith. We know this from Ephesians 6. Resist him. Declare the truth of the power of the cross right back to that lie. That accusation, that memory comes into your mind, resist it. Say, yes, I did sin. And Christ paid for it in full on the cross. Yes, I did say that thing, and I was wrong. And my Heavenly Father forgives me. He knows all about it, and He has said, is paid for in full by His Son, Jesus Christ. Resist Him. And then Peter went on to say, these sufferings are not unique to you. That's another lie that Satan wants you to believe. That you're all alone. That you're isolated in your pain. That you're isolated in your trials. Peter says, no, this is common to those who follow Christ. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. This is common to man. Do not believe the lie that you're alone in your sufferings. Gather together as the saints. Gather together and share the sufferings that you're in together. Support one another. Be honest about the lies that he's feeding to you. Be honest in sharing the burdens that you're bearing, the sufferings that you're enduring, and support one another in declaring the work of Christ. Lastly, we come to the hope of humility. What we looked at before, we must take on the habit of humility, serving others in the church. We must fight the enemy of humility by repenting of our pride. We must believe in the freedom of humility by depending on our mighty and caring God in all circumstances. We take on the shield of humility, resisting Satan's lies with faith in Christ and the power of the cross. And then finally, we must rest in the hope of humility. What is our hope? We read about this in verse 10. 
the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. Throughout this passage, we've seen a movement, a movement of descent, humbling yourself before others, humbling yourself before God, depending on him in all circumstances, in all trials, in the midst of suffering, and God will lift you up. God will exalt you. Here we see this again. God himself will restore you. Peter, Peter saw this firsthand, this descent and exaltation. What could have been a greater descent than Christ dying on the cross. All hope snuffed out. The light of the world gone dark. Peter hiding with his friends in fear, wondering what's next. Where are we to go? What are we to do? And then victoriously, Jesus Christ emerging from the tomb. The grave is empty. And then seeing the risen glorious Christ standing before him, victorious over death, and then ascending, ascending to the heavens where he he reigns in glory. Peter saw the descent and the exaltation. He knows that's the pathway for us as well. Pride says, skip the humility, skip the low road, climb over others, exalt yourself. God says, No, trust me, humble yourself before my providential care. Trust me in all circumstances. Follow the road of of Christ. And united to him by faith, you will rise to him, with him on that last day. He will lift you up. Those who are suffering in Sudan, China, Iran, whose road only seems to descend, will one day result in glory. They will be lifted up by God himself. And friends, that is your destination as well. For all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he himself will lift your head. He will gather you with all the saints for glory everlasting. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are in need of being reminded that you are with us that you have come to set us free from sin and death and that we can follow after you, taking on the form of a servant, looking for others to serve, knowing that you ultimately were the one who served us. You, the Son of God, worthy of all worship and praise, took on the form of a servant, became man, perfectly obedient to the Father, going to the cross so that we might have our sins forgiven so that we might have life with you for eternity. We're grateful for these promises. We're grateful that this can be our hope. So would you transform us to be a people who accept the call to humility? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.